want to invite you today to turn in your Bible again to that first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And in your own copy of God's Word, to see that familiar scene again in the angelic vision, the angelic visit to Mary, but first to realize the bridge that we saw last Sunday with the preparation, the miracle of God's gift to Zacharias and Elizabeth being a a bridge across, not only the bridge across time, but a bridge from the era of prophetic preparation into the rich territory of new covenant fulfillment. And in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, it is, it is very, very striking that the closing part of Zechariah's response to God after writing on the tablet of the baby's name will be John and his voice being loosed from over nine months of silence, that he begins to praise God and magnify the Lord for the awesome reality of what is happening as this little baby that is now being dedicated, the little forerunner, indicates the fulfillment of God's plan to do something that in Christmas we see brought to our minds and hearts in a very fresh way. And I I think of it as a great starting point in verse 68 of Luke 1 to again kind of bridge that into this experience that is so pivotal in all aspects of life. We can almost see in Mary's response, as we'll see, a forecast of the response of a believer's heart to truly worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. But first, in looking at Zechariah's words in, in Luke 1.68, we find Zechariah referring to the coming visit of the Lord. And if you would just read aloud from the screen with me, what he said at first. He has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. This is God's fulfilled word about coming in person. Prophet Ezekiel had, in a time of great trial and adversity and darkness for the people of Israel have spoken of the failure of the shepherds who in that day had proven to be such radical disappointments because of their missing of the purpose of God. And in the midst of that uh, ominous warning against the false shepherds, a promise occurs where God says, I will come. I will shepherd them. I will personally be that shepherd. Jesus, in all aspects of his mission, was the personality of God coming to us, the personal presence of the Father in every respect. And yet, as remarkable as it is, he chose the most common of environments and the most mundane of human experiences to embed 
this indescribably valuable reality that now the way will be open to have a living, open relationship with the true and living God where sin's barrier has been removed by the shedding of the blood of the sacrificed lamb. And so as early as the date of the birth of John the Baptist, before the event of the birth of Jesus, the prophecy is coming forth bridging that era into the new covenant and he's speaking of visiting and redeeming his people. I think of it this way, that God has wrapped his grace for us in plain packaging. And even in that, there is a hint, there's a forecast of some of the most vital lessons we need to embrace as followers of Jesus, worshiping him in spirit and in truth. When Zechariah continued to proclaim the beauty of what this grace packaged plainly would mean, he couched it in the brightest of possible terms, and that is a, a rather obscure idiom of the Hebrew about the earliest signs of sunrise called the morning star or the day star. Peter refers to it later again, and in comparison to the, to the uh, the prophetic word that prepared the way for the coming of Messiah. And Peter says, we now have in Christ the morning star, the, the far brighter, the, the effulgence of God's plan that we could see with clarity what we need to see. It is more than a poetic symbolism. It is speaking of the day star arising in your heart, the reality that God is now giving you the opportunity to see. In Zechariah's prophecy, it comes in light of this visitation of grace bringing God's love in person. And again, I invite you to read this part of Zechariah's prophecy aloud with me. God's love and kindness will shine upon us like the sun that rises in the sky. On us who live in the dark shadow of death, this light will shine to guide us into a life of peace. And so in a sense, though it was prophetic and though it was a bridge prophecy, it was aiming at the very event at which, as we said, angels, 1 Peter 1.11, they longed to look into this. One translation of 1 Peter 1.11 about the angels yearning the J.B. Phillips translation uses the English paraphrase that angels, it was as if angels were standing on tiptoes looking to see what God was going to do. And then when we come to that magnificent moment of the manger where the baby is being cradled in the arms of Mary, where his birth has occurred in the, in, in the crudest and most humble and most... Um, in many ways, undesirable of human circum circumstances, being born in what many historians believe was a, a cave just off the, the edge of the little town of Bethlehem that a makeshift manger had been set up for this couple needing a place to give birth. And as, as, as awesome and glorious as it is for all of us, 
indescribably impactful in every area of our lives, God chose to bring his grace in person, in a sense, in plain packaging. So many ways that this uh, event and this experience has been pictured throughout history and so many ways that we might think of it, and literally no artist rendering, no poet's pen, no narrative retelling of the story can ever, ever really reach the full magnitude of what it was for the cries of that infant, just as Mary's song brought us so beautifully this morning, for the cries of that infant to pierce the darkness and for human beings to hear the voice of their Savior in the normal cries of a newborn baby. How much more intimately real could God be bringing us his gift? One writer in the midst of the 17th century, the famous poet John Milton, put it in a lengthy poem of many stanzas called The Ode to the Nativity, in which Milton wrote in about 1660s or early 1670s about Jesus. And Milton's words were these, Maker of the sun, he is made under the sun. Creator of heaven and earth, he was born on earth under heaven. Filling the world, he lies in a manger. Ruler of the stars, he nurses at his mother's bosom. To even begin to get to the point of grasping how far the descent of Almighty God was to reach us, these poets, in a sense, are kind of climbing the artistic rock wall to reach that place of clarity. I remember reading um, about a, a famous pianist, Van Cliburn, some of you would remember his name, in the mid-70s was being interviewed by back the newspaper in the town I lived in as a high schooler, and he had done a concert in that city. And the newspaper reporter was asking him to describe what is it like to perform this one particular piece by Bach that was the centerpiece of his concert that evening at the Civic Auditorium. And Van Cliburn said, in a way, it's like always being on the climb up a great mountain to the summit peak to, to finally attain anything that begins to reach the genius of Bach. And every time I play that piece, I'm aiming to get a little closer to Bach and what he was expressing, but I never quite reach it. The same could be said of any writer, any preacher, any singer, any poet, any artist about conveying the glory of the incarnation. Another who took a good effort at this, uh, a, a Baptist pastor around the turn of the last century named F.B. Mayer, describes the birth of Jesus in, in, a, in a similar, somewhat poetic way, but accenting the, the dramatic difference in how we perceive God and what God chose to do. And F.B. Mayer put it like this, Christ was born of a woman, yet he made woman. 
He ate and hungered, drank and thirsted, yet he made the corn to grow on the mountains and poured the rivers from his crystal chalice. He needed sleep, yet he slumbers not and needs not to regain his energy for each new day. He wept, yet he created the tear ducts. He died, yet he is the ever-living Yahweh and made the tree from which Roman soldiers shaped his cross. He inherited all things by death, yet they were his by inherent right before the beginning of time. What else can we do but bow in reverence at the very mention of the Messiah in the manger? And this is why, as you trace a little further in your copy of the Bible in Luke chapter 1, or actually come backwards, actually, to that uh, 45th verse, I think it's really notable that in verse 45 of Luke 1, at the conclusion of that momentous meeting between, um, between Elizabeth, who's now expecting John the Baptist, and Mary, who has arisen, who's ar- who has arrived from Nazareth to visit her cousin in the hill country of Judea, and is now earlier in her pregnancy than her cousin is, carrying the Messiah within her womb, the virgin mother of Jesus. And in the conclusion of their conversation, in verse 45 of of Luke 1, if you'd find that in your Bible, Elizabeth exclaims in the 44th verse, as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And then in verse 45, pronounced a blessing that we want to apply across the board in our lives in three different ways today. The word blessed stands as the vestibule into a lifelong reality that true Advent, the real meaning of Christmas, can give us today. This is what Elizabeth said, the last words recorded from the lips of of Elizabeth in this encounter, verse 45, blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. The blessing for you and me today is indeed is in believing. And it is in that it is in that simplicity. There's an elegant simplicity that God is placed in the glory of the new birth that is reflected in Elizabeth's benediction. Blessed is she who believed. And in that simple expression lies the core issue of the heart as to how we receive and respond to what God has done. For if you again trace back a little further into that first encounter with Mary and the angel, notice, if you will, in verse 34 of Luke 1, where Mary asks that unforgettable question, how shall this be, since I am a virgin? And the angels answered, 
the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. In that answer, we get as close as is humanly possible to a grasping of the magnitude of the miracle of the Incarnation. The Holy Spirit, all of the Trinity wrapped up in this, in this moment of description, the Father promising that the Holy Spirit's immediate power and grace upon Mary physiologically will bring the conceiving in her womb of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit magnified in this, in the glory of the incarnation in a way that, that brings us to the very threshold of the ultimate mystery, and yet in that very moment, with elegant simplicity, invites you and me to believe. When the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and his promise to deliver every captive soul from the bondage of his or her sin is given to any person on any part of this planet, when the good news of his saving love goes forth, any human being at any level of understanding can do what Romans 10.9 says, that if you shall confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And in the heart's believing, it is exactly one with the very believing that Elizabeth coached Mary to accept. Uh, back in the summer, when we looked at the last time Mary's listened in the look, mentioned in the Bible, we in in August we looked at the fact that Mary's last mention in the Bible is as in a way a model of the child of God who believes in the saving reality of his resurrection and becomes a part of the redeemed people of God. It's quite evident from the first chapter of Acts that Mary becomes a part of the family of God in the same way that every other believer is given that promise of the Holy Spirit. And so, tracing from Luke 1.45, where Elizabeth said, Blessed is she who believes, all the way into the indefinite future of all the believers who would follow in Mary's footsteps in that way, we can see both a magnificent mystery, but also an elegant simplicity. I believe Paul the Apostle summarized this. It's kind of a dilemma in a way what I'm talking about because it's so mind-boggling on one level, and yet in that very moment, God in his, in his eternal design for the redeeming of lost souls concentrated like, like a great laser beam of light into one tiny point of incandescent light called believing God. With the heart, man believes, Romans 10.10 says. With the mouth, we confess. It's such a mystery. And Paul summarizes it in this passage, I think, so well in 1 Corinthians 2. And I'll invite you to read this one aloud with me as well. I think it clarifies 
Why incarnation today? The heart of Christmas is God becoming human. And Paul summarizes it this way. Read this aloud with me if you would. We speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery. A wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom, for if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, maybe the most surprising part of that summary is the the phrase Paul uses, that it was given for our glory, a wisdom predestined before the ages for our glory. Now, certainly we know the, the glory is all to Christ. But Paul is using that phrase in a very specific, nuanced way. What he's really saying is, just what Elizabeth said to Mary, blessed is she who believed and counts on the faithfulness of God in her heart. The very same thing Mary pondered in Luke 2.19 after the shepherds left the manger cave in Bethlehem and the Bible says Mary pondered these things in her heart. What she was dazzled by was the reality that God has done this for us. For our glory is not in place in any way of the Lord's glory. It's saying we have been the heirs of a glory that is indescribable in human language. And what does that glory do for us? (laughs) I'd like you to think about this in one more place to look in your own Bible is Luke 1 verse 36 and 37 where the angel then further explains to Mary, even Elizabeth, your relative, this is before that visit we saw, but even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, verse 37, read it aloud if you have your Bible open, for nothing is impossible with God. What can we say about that incandescent laser beam of truth that comes from the magnificent mystery of Almighty God in an incarnation that truly is the wonder of angels in their universal scope and yet comes directly to the heart, focused on that simple invitation, believe God. What can we say about Mary as the model giving us this great treasure. I think first there are three things we could draw from how the incarnation actually impacted the person Mary, the real person Mary. And I think first of all, it vanquished her fear. Now, it is such a part of that elegant gift of God that he shows us the the raw reality of the obvious fear that any person would have of suddenly being met with an angel of such magnificent splendor as Gabriel. So we understand Mary's fear certainly and feel it in the depth of our bones. How then and how in our times of sudden alert and being jolted into something that creates fear, where do we go? The angel's 
answer to Mary was, do not be afraid, Mary, for the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you are highly favored. Do not be afraid, Mary, verse 28, the Lord is with you. So first we can say that the incarnation itself The very fact of the incarnation and all that Gabriel was sent to announce to Mary, it vanquishes the fears that are so much a real part of the human experience. What is notable about fear in the Bible is how clearly God shines a light on the reality of the need of the human heart. Someone has said, based on the King James translation, quite a little interesting bit of Bible trivia, somebody has said that they counted uh, in the words fear not in the King James translation, and it came out to 365 times in the Bible, meaning you have a fear not for every day of the year. I don't think that's exact. It depends on your translation. So, But let's say in the 350s. So you could say that fear not, do not be afraid. In essence, we can certainly say from that, the the direct addressing of fear in Mary's experience has a larger application for all of us. The angel Gabriel's words were, fear not, you are highly favored, and the Lord is with you. Now, I, I believe that in that moment, Not only was Mary's fear calm, certainly, but I believe there's also a takeaway there that is deeply embedded in the way God revealed his glory even in the Old Covenant. I think of two quick examples, and they're there if you want to look them up later, but two two great examples of the fear nots. One, in Exodus 20.20, and it's easy to remember, it's 20.20 of Exodus, and what's fascinating about that verse is the paradox of fear embedded in that one verse. For that is the place where the people seeing the magnificent glory of God Shekinah uh, causing natural phenomena on Mount Sinai, they truly are trembling in fear. And God speaks through Moses, go to the people and say to them, do not be afraid for I am with you to keep you safe so that you will not be under fear in this world. In other words, there is a fear of God that diminishes all other fears. There's a paradox of fear. So he was giving them a fear of God that would then diminish the lesser fears. That is why, clearly, that Psalm 111 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because to, to truly be in awe of God delivers us from false fears. And then he accents that in a promise in Isaiah 41.10. When God says, fear not, for I am with you, Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. 
Mary's experience responding to the angel's announcement shows us that the living God becoming human vanquishes our fears. Now, we, we won't feel that at times, and when we don't feel that, we can be reminded that the reality of who Christ is is not dependent upon our circumstances. I think a second uh, key aspect of Mary's encounter with the truth of incarnation is that she learns about the fact of incarnation itself, and that produces an adoration in her. What Mary's encounter is, is, is revealing is, of course, the fulfillment of this magnificent fact that the baby she will carry is both eternal God and fully human. And it was signaled in one of the great prophecies of Isaiah, in Isaiah 9-6, where the Bible says, unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. In a sense, the unto us, the unto us, just as it was for Mary, was the humanity of the Lord Jesus accented in Hebrews 2.14 where the Bible says that he had to be made like us in every exact way, in every single aspect of humanity except he was without sin. But on every human level, he fully identified, and that was for us. It is why Paul said, these things were revealed for our glory, that we receive the glorious inheritance of this. By the same token, unto us a child is born, then links to unto us the Son is given. The deity, the eternal, preexistent, almighty creator, whose choice to enter into humanity in the infinitesimal size of the embryo of the incarnate God in the womb of the Virgin Mary, this is the moment God becomes man. And in that expression, what Mary begins to reflect is an adoration, a pouring out of her heart that then ushers forth in the home of Elizabeth as the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he who is mighty has done great things, and holy is his name. The promise, the reality of the incarnation is that fully God, fully man, the word of life coming to us as John wrote in 1 John 1, the, in a form that we handled, our eyes have seen, we have touched him, we have walked with him, he has dwelt with us. This word of life we proclaim to you. The one that the writer of the book of Hebrews describes as, as the one we can always know of God's eternal and infinitely wise care. Why? Because we don't see under our feet now the subjugation of evil. This very week we've seen again, example after of example of the horrific 
evil and violence that human beings do to one another. And in the face of indescribable tragedies, the mind reels with an understanding of how people, how evil human beings can become. And the writer of Hebrews is talking about that. He's saying, when you look at the world around you, we can't see true justice. We can't see things evil put under our feet yet. But then he says, but we see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while. That is, the earthly sojourn of Jesus, from his pre-born infancy in the womb of Mary, until the moment that he gave up his lifeblood on the cross, he was lower than the angels for a little while. Now crowned with glory and honor that he might taste death for everyone. Now, as I said, these truths of incarnation are such that the, wrapping the brain around it is, is never easy. I think one of my favorite illustrations of incarnation is what C.S. Lewis described in one of his writings in the late 1950s as C.S. Lewis was trying to uh, describe to, to people uh, how radically different it is for God to become man, and that this isn't just some costume he's wearing, but no, he is fully entered into bringing grace fully in person, but wrapped in plain packaging of humanity. And, and this is the way C.S. Lewis described it. As a kid, I remember seeing in the later, about probably the oh, late 60s, I can remember as a kid watching the, the ABC Wide World of Sports. Some of you will date yourselves and remember that. And I remember some episodes in the ABC Wide World of Sports where, um, where they had filmed on location in Acapulco these, these giant cliffs in Acapulco where these, uh, where, where these very, very highly skilled uh, and daring divers would leap off of those cliffs, uh, plunging sometimes uh, over 150 feet into the ocean in their dives. C.S. Lewis must have liked it too because he talked about it as a picture of incarnation. You might say, well, how? Well, C.S. Lewis compared what God had to do with the way one of those divers in Acapulco would leap off the high crevice of that cliff into the vast unknown of the sky, comparing that to God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit deciding on the ultimate rescue mission that God the Son would indeed leave the portals of eternal pre-existent glory and enter into a, an alien world far more daring and far more magnificent than any diver. But C.S. Lewis compared it to the way these divers would then arc their body plunge into the depth of the ocean and penetrate the green emerald water, Lewis said, and then go deeper down to the icy darkest waters. And there they touch the murky bottom 
Then their lungs, reaching out for air, they turn and surge up from the sky. Blackness to the emerald green waters again, and then surge out of the water, shouting and exulting and splashing. Just so, Jesus plunged down into life. But he didn't just dwell in the icy darkness of earthly living for a few moments, but rather was among us for 33 years. Um, Diver maybe has the lung capacity to hold his breath for how long? (laughs) I don't know what the record is, holding breath. (laughs) What's the record? Two minutes. And yet Jesus is among us, C.S. Lewis says, for 33 years. And it's like he says, he brings that scene into into the light of these words that we read in John 1, 14, that the word became flesh and dwelt, say these words aloud with me, three words, for a while among us, and we beheld his glory. Uh, Far longer than holding your breath under the depths of the icy waters of the ocean, and yet it surely illustrates in relative terms what an astonishing thing it is for God to become human. Somebody was taking a first-timer to the heights of, the, of Mount Everest, and when the Sherpa guide got to this certain point where they had to climb a last section to get to very, very high into that reach where they get a much broader view, the untrained visitor was rushing to try to stand on the heights when the Sherpa grabbed him and pulled him down, and he said, On your knees, on your knees, the only way to be safe here is on your knees. The gale force winds that sweep across that magnificent mountain peak were far too much for the physical strength of of an untrained climber. And what the Sherpa was saying to the visitor is what the Word of God says to us. It's what Mary modeled for us. Get on your knees. Now, I think another aspect of the incarnation that impacts her is something I would just call the heart connections in redeeming grace. Not only did the incarnation vanquish Mary's fears, and not only does the incarnation introduce Mary like it does us to a, to a mystery far greater than we can describe, and yet, and, and yet so vital that, that we dare not diminish the wonder of it. it. It evokes a worship from our heart. So in that encounter where Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, again, the very earliest phase of Mary's virgin pregnancy and about six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist, They have that magnificent meeting. And in some ways, the meeting of the mind, the meeting of the heart, the meeting soul to soul of 
the mother of the Messiah and the mother of the, the forerunner whose birth is a natural biological birth, though still miraculous because of her advanced age. This connection point between these two women is not only a wonderful, poignant scene between them and between the relationship of, of trust and care and empathy that was expressed, but I think it takes the incarnation of the Lord and Mary's experience to a broader picture of future grace that reaches into the hearts of hurting women all over the world. In fact, it isn't only women, but it is illuminated and accented by the unique needs in the lives of women in their most vital experiences of being the nurturers of life. In the ministry of Jesus in his full adulthood, it is so common that we see the yearning for those that wanted to get close enough just to touch the hem of his garment. The notable example in, in Mark 5 of, of the woman with the issue of blood who said, if I may just touch the hem of his garment, I know I'll be made whole. And yet even that story is not just a standalone mighty miracle, though it is awesome in itself, but it is aiming at a truth amplified in the New Testament that is part of what surely Mary began to ponder. If God tells me, blessed are those who believe, for nothing is impossible with God, that means that God's word, yes, God's word must become more of a treasure in our lives than ever. What better thing could come out of Christmas of 2023 than that the people of God in America in this very troubled time in our country would begin anew to stand in awe at the incarnation for sure, to stand in worship and adoration for Almighty God, and to treasure the Word of God as the life giving source that it was to Mary. To do it like the woman with the issue of blood who said, if I may just touch even the hem of his garment, I know I'll be made whole. Should we also not approach the Word of God that way? If I, could, if I can simply touch the, the corner, the edge, the application the Holy Spirit will bring me today from this one passage of Scripture, it will bring wholeness, it'll bring wellness, it'll bring perspective, it'll bring peace. I, I believe that what, what Mary was coached to do by Elizabeth, believe, believe and cherish it in your heart, is what the woman with the issue of blood modeled and the model expands to you and me. And I, I believe it's true partly because the Apostle Paul said it uh, in 2 Corinthians 1.20 when he said, And now we see from this that all the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. 
That word we close almost every prayer with, amen. We're so used to it, we say it almost mindlessly. But the word amen, A-M-E-N, literally is saying vocally and verbally and volitionally with my will, I am in agreement. I am saying yes to God. And as I say yes to God, like Mary said, yes, yes, be it unto me according to your word, what you find out is that God is saying yes to you. Mary's yes, Mary's yes gave a wide vista of future grace to future believers who would say yes because it arises from God's yes to us. Now, none of this would be true. None of this could be take-home material. None of this could help you Monday through Saturday of the coming week unless Luke 137 is at the center of all that we take from incarnation. And that is, with God, nothing will be impossible. The, the translation, the actual sentence of Luke 137 has um, an interesting kind of play on words. Mary has said, I am the Lord's servant. Say that with me. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And in that 37th verse, the Greek expression puts the very last word in the sentence. Sentence order is different, of course, in that language. But the very last word is the word rhema, a specific word from God. It's similar to what Jesus said to the, to the enemy when he was tempted, and he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And in the Greek text of Luke 137, it could be more rendered, though not as a little clumsy in the English, but more to the word order, nothing beyond his power, no impossibilities with God, hyphen his word. So what Luke 137 does is it links the omnipotent power of God with a heart believing that specifically what God says shall be done. It's another way of, of, of describing what Isaiah said in Isaiah 55, 11, when he said, so shall my word be, speaking the Lord, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth, it shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish what I choose and prosper in the place I send it. Mary now has embraced the word that proceeds from the mouth of God, and she said, no word from God shall be impossible. Nothing is beyond the possibilities of aligning with God. Why? Because of his word. May it be to me according to your word. May fear be vanquished. May a fear that would steal from you the vitality and freedom and, and liveliness of your faith. May your adoration for our living king be, be growing 
in this time of thinking of what it means that he plunged into those icy waters, into the deep darkness of human despair, and lived for a while among us, and to say with our hearts, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, I say yes to your yes. I want to invite you to pray for a moment, and in this moment to say unto the Lord, a yes from the heart, simple, simple. The elegant simplicity of the new birth is that the very, the very seed of, of new life modeled after the, the unrepeatable miracle of incarnation is that God plants the seed by believing, believing. Blessed is she who believes, Elizabeth said. Mary responds, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For I have said with my own lips, yes, Lord. Say those two words aloud with me today. Yes, Lord. Would you say them once again? Yes, Lord. I'm saying yes to your yes.